0: Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, and a board-certified lactation consultant.
1: And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Inova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant.
0: This podcast is produced and edited by The Milk Mob and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Well, hi there, Karen. How's it going? Great. How are you doing? Good, good. So I'm going to talk about a couple articles, and we can chat about the topics as well. So the first article I want to talk about today on our podcast is about epilepsy. And so the first article is entitled unintended pregnancy, prenatal care, newborn outcomes, and breastfeeding in women with epilepsy. And the authors are Emily Johnson, Ann Burke, and others. And this was published in June of the Neurology um, Journal in 2018, June 2018. So the researchers used the PRAMS data. So PRAMS, for those who are not aware, is the Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System. Uh, This is a survey that the CDC sends out every year to like a random number of postpartum women to ask various questions. So a lot of our research that's done to find out about all kinds of different issues for pregnancy and lactation come from PRAMS data. So for those of you who read the clinical question of the week at the Milk Mob, you'll see a lot of sort of more robust research with large numbers of patients tends to be from PRAMS. Anyway, So this particular data that they they called out of uh, the survey material was asking about epilepsy, unintended pregnancy, and breastfeeding. And they found that among about 73,600 women who responded to the survey, that about 0.7% or about 541 had epilepsy. Um, So that was interesting just to know that it was almost 1%. And among the women with epilepsy, 55% had unintended pregnancy, whereas among the women without epilepsy, 48% had unintended pregnancy. So they found a slightly higher unintended pregnancy among women who had epilepsy. And, And these are all women that delivered, correct? Yes. Wow. So they had, yeah. So many of them said that they had used birth control What type of birth control do you think, I'm going to ask you this test question, do you think they reported most often that
1: failed? Um, Oral contraceptives? No. Um, Condoms?
0: Yes, that's one. (laughs) What's the other? Which I didn't even consider a method, really, but it's considered a method.
1: um natural family planning or just the Withdrawal method. Withdrawal. withdrawal. That's not a method.
0: I know, but it was considered a method. So anyway, um,
1: I think people do consider it a method. They are incorrect.
0: I have a number of patients that use withdrawal as a method. That's, but and I tell my patients, you know, that's not really a method. And then I explain the science behind it. No, whatever. Um, So anyway, (laughs) so the rate of breastfeeding women who had epilepsy, um, who have epilepsy, had a sixty nine point one percent. Of ever breastfeeding compared to 84.6% of women who didn't have epilepsy. So, so breastfeeding rates were definitely lower for women with epilepsy. And um, so, the authors went on to say that although w- people tend to worry about anti-epileptic meds during lactation, mm-hmm. breastfeeding is still recommended. And the authors cite a couple studies that I were not that I was not aware of. One was called the Norwegian Mother and Child Cohort Study. And this was a prospective study of 223 women who were taking anti-epileptic medications and they were breastfeeding and they found that those, well, not all of them were breastfeeding. Some were breastfeeding and some were not. And those who were breastfeeding, they found that those infants actually had higher motor and social skills compared to the infants who were not breastfeeding.
1: Yay, breastfeeding! Right, yeah,
0: and then there was another study that was entitled uh, "The Neurodevelopmental Effects of anti Drug Study," which was um, actually a multi-center study. And the women were either taking carbamazepine, lamotrigine, phenytoin, or valproate. Valproate, and they found that um, the babies who were breastfed did have higher IQs and cognitive abilities up to age six compared to infants who were not breastfed. So clearly breastfeeding is important for babies who, are, um, who have mothers who are taking these medications and that, in fact, we should not be shying away from these mothers uh, breastfeeding and that they should breastfeed because they, they're going to have better outcomes. And then I started wondering, well, gosh, you know, they were definitely exposed to these meds during pregnancy. So then the question is, does breastfeeding actually help to um, sort of ameliorate the effects of epileptic medications that may be happening during pregnancy. So they don't say anything about that. But I I do think that we should be thinking about this. And I know that it seems a little scary because these medications oftentimes do seem to have effects on people's brains, these epileptic medications do. But, um, you know, in terms of making them tired or foggy, um, people I know who've taken um, Topamax will say, don't you know that Some people call it Dopamax, you know, because it makes them feel tired. Um, And so maybe uh, there are people, there are obviously people who think, well, maybe it's better just to not breastfeed because formula's fine. But in reality, that's not really true.
1: That's so fascinating. I would say that um, Lamotrigine is one of the most common medications that people contact me about, providers, Mm -hmm. to ask whether or not their um, patients should be prohibited from breastfeeding on that medication. And um, I think that it's, you know, certainly one of, when you read in LactMed, which is my first place that I go to when I'm reading about medications um, and breast milk, it is one of the um, entries that has some more concerning language in it. You know, it talks about how there have been adverse reactions, um, but it also says that it is not a reason um, not to breastfeed. and. Talks about monitoring infants. And when people, you know, some people are more concerned by that language than others, I always say to them, you know, if you want to decrease the amount of exposure to that medication, people can dual feed and that'll decrease the amount of milk and decrease the amount of medication. But I have to say, hearing that study makes me less likely to say that. I will, you know, be saying, there's evidence that babies do better with their
0: prostate.
1: Yeah. Better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, I'm just looking at the at the lamotrigine um, information on lact med and it said mainly to watch for uh, the short like short term side effects, um, mm-hmm. like apnea or rash or drowsiness or poor sucking. Um and that mm-hmm. long term it's been shown to be safe. So that's good. Yeah.
1: And and sometimes um we could you know, do some blood testing to check platelet counts and liver function. Mm-hmm. I think the other really important thing about this medication in particular is that, and this is true of other epileptics as well, lots of moms require increased dosing during their pregnancy mm-hmm. to prevent seizures. And they need to be brought back down to their pre-pregnancy doses after they deliver um, that may require some leaning because dropping people's um, levels too quickly could cause them to have um, a seizure. But it is helpful in terms of reducing the levels in milk to reduce moms back to a non-pregnant dose of those medicines.
0: That's a really great point. That's a great point. And yeah, totally agree. In fact, I was just going to say, if, I think if unless you have something else to say about seizure meds, I was going to say... That this is true for other meds as well, uh, particularly thyroid medication. And sometimes mm-hmm. I think that when women deliver and they're on a much higher dose of levothyroxine during their pregnancy and they deliver and it's not brought down, oftentimes I will see women with some milk supply issues in their their TSH, their um, uh, the, the level that we're checking to monitor their thyroid function uh, tends to be pretty suppressed. And so Sometimes I wonder if being kept on that really high dose actually impacts their supply as well. So, um, anyway, that's just an assessive tangential to the whole idea of switching meds back to where they were um, during, you know, from um, pregnancy to lactation. But then sometimes increasing yeah. meds postpartum, like for depression and things like that, anxiety. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. And and the other thing that I love about um, lactmed is that. You know, there are lots of specifics in here about the reports where, you know, there were either serum levels or milk levels um, drawn to try to find out how much of the medication was in the milk or in the baby serum. And those um, often in LactMed, it'll say a mom who was taking 300 milligrams daily was found to, you know, have a baby that did well. And the... um, patient that I'm taking care of is only on a much lower dose of, you know, 100. And so then I can, you know, say to them, you're actually on a pretty low dose relative to this, and you're doing great.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that, that data is so helpful, particularly for I think, for moms who are seeing someone like a rheumatologist or a cardiologist or someone else, where those doctors can look at that data and say, Oh, okay, yeah, 25 of, you know, whatever it is, metoprolol is no big deal. You know, it looks like they did levels on someone who took 100. And, so, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of put it all into perspective is good for sure. Yeah. Okay. That's so interesting. I like yeah. that. Thanks. Yeah. And then um, so the next article I want to talk about is about PKU, um, which which is phenylketonuria, um, for those who are not as familiar. Um, so PKU is a genetic disease that's autosomal recessive. And these the disease results in infants not being able to metabolize phenylalanine, which is an amino acid. and that Uh, In turn, the phenylalanine level will rise and become toxic to the brain, so they're at risk for brain damage. So we want to catch that early. And so this was a study that was done entitled Early Feeding Practices in Infants with Phenylketonuria Across Europe in Molecular Genetics and and Metabolism Reports Journal. This was just published in 2018. Um, and there were, like, at least 50 authors. I'm not going to list any of them because they included authors from every single center, every single one of the several centers that they uh, surveyed. So, um, so infants who have PKU, they need um, special dietary management to keep their phenylalanine levels low by um, usually some sort of breastfeeding and then supplementing with a formula that's phenylalanine-free. And um, so there's not really strict guidelines on this there's a lot of different ways that people practice this and so this um, survey was just basically trying to find out what different people are doing the European guidelines for PKU are to keep the phenylalanine level between 120 and 360 micro micro molecules per liter and the the earlier that infants are found positive the lower the phen- phenylalanine levels and then breastfeeding doesn't have to be interrupted as much so if for example newborn screening happens late and the results are and the results are found later and the child has just been breastfeeding and and breastfeeding hasn't been interrupted um sometimes they have to be completely taken off the breast for a period of time because the levels are the phenylalanine levels are so high whereas if mm-hmm. the PKU is found early they can start to modify breastfeeding early um, and not completely take the baby off the breast. Um, So again, there's no real universal standard for how to do this. But of course, what they're emphasizing is that early recognition is really important. Um, There are a couple different techniques that can be used. One is to actually measure an amount of expressed breast milk um, prior to giving formula. So you say, okay, your baby can have you know 30 or 60 ml of breast milk, and then you give the formula to finish up. That's one technique. Another technique is to pre-measure an amount of infant formula, like, okay, you're going to take 30 to 60 ml of this um, phenylalanine free formula, and then you're going to breastfeed until the baby's satiated. And then another way that people have done this is to pre-measure the amount of formula, so give 30 to 60 ml of formula first. And then you time breastfeed, like, okay, then you can breastfeed for like five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, which I think is a joke because timing doesn't mean anything, <laughs> right? That, that shows that someone... I mean, I think
1: <laughs> yeah. over time for that particular mom, you might get a feeling for exactly. how much, you know, based on the baby's blood levels, but you're going to have to follow those super closely.
0: Yes, yes. So this survey, so that's basically the history of how, you know, different types of feedings that have been thrown out there. So this study was a survey of 91 metabolic centers from 21 different countries, mainly in Europe, um, throughout um, Southern, Western, Northern, and Eastern Europe. And um, so they said that only 58% of the centers actually screened newborns by three days of age, which I thought was interesting. Um, Mm. When do you guys do your newborn screen?
1: Uh, Anova? So where I currently am, they do it with the 24-hour check. Yeah. Um, I recently went to the D.C. Breastfeeding Coalition Summit, and it was so interesting to learn that, um, because we're right at the border of Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., Mm -hmm. um, that that basically I've lived some places where if you have it before 48 hours, you're required to come back later to have a second one. Mm -hmm. And I learned for the first time that, that's based on whether or not they're doing the newer test, which is the molecular test versus the older test where they actually were you know, measuring the enzyme. Because wow. you know, this is a great example of a, um, in order for the enzyme test to be positive, this child really should have been on 24 hours of protein-containing feeds before mm-hmm. the test was done. And a lot of babies don't really feed very much in the first day and so our geneticist recently told me that all of our standards are um, our norms for all the different tests on our metabolic screening are based on tests done at 48 hours of age Hmm. but our tests are done at 24 and so I was like well you know what does that mean for us Um, and so there are different test methodologies that are being done in different places and that can affect the accuracy of doing the test early. Right,
0: right. So if it's based on needing to have them feed, they're not going to be as accurate at 24 hours as they will be if they're based on other measures of like genetic
1: testing, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And and we don't necessarily have the genetic test for every type of error that causes certain diseases, right? right? So like Cystic fibrosis is a great example. The vast, vast majority are caused by one particular um, genetic mutation, but there are others, and some have not yet been fully identified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, we do the same thing. We, we screen at 24 hours, and that's when they get a billy screen as well. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, so what they found in this study is that um, – 53% of the centers that they surveyed gave the pre-measured f- um, phenylalanine formula first, and then, they, um, and then they allowed them to just breastfeed. And, and then the majority of the rest, 23%, alternated breastfeeds with phenylalanine-free formula. So one feed would just be breast milk, and one feed would just be formula. Mm-hmm. And then there, was, there has been some research looking at women expressing breast milk and measuring the breast milk, but they found that um, there was no evidence that that was beneficial, that that was more beneficial than giving a pre-measured amount of formula first and then breastfeeding to satiety. So, so a lot of centers have just gone to that as an option or breastfeed one feed and then the, phen- the phenylalanine formula, the other feed. So those are the two things. It would be interesting to see what's happening in the United States. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I'm super fascinated. I have to say that any protocol that requires people to pump their breast milk when they could potentially be putting to the baby to the breast is it's just more work, and people right. tend to not keep that up as long because... Right, You don't get that experience with your baby, and it's just a lot of work.
0: Right. Well, they found that, in general, the breastfeeding duration among these um, families who had a baby with PKU was much shorter probably than than the average in their country. So they found Mm -hmm. that the average duration of breastfeeding um, until between 5 and 17 weeks, um, uh, that was the duration about 26% of the countries. So 26% of the countries... The infants only breastfed between five and seventeen weeks, and um, in thirty-four percent of the countries they breastfed from eighteen to twenty-six weeks, and in twenty-four of the countries, twenty-four percent of the countries, they nursed from twenty-seven to fifty-two percent. So over one year, only six percent of the wow. um, countries had um, an average breastfeeding rate of it was over a year. So. Um, yeah, they definitely cut it short early, just because it's probably a pain. It's probably harder to maintain lactation when you're not, you have
1: to maintain oh, your breast milk yeah. by pumping at other times. So, um, and also, and then, I think probably there's some amount of people being given, at least initially, the information you're not going to be able to breastfeed, right? So they might not get off to a strong start the first right. few days and right. establish their supply. I mean, I don't know if that's true. They may not have the results of the screening test back. Some right. people may be diagnosed prenatally. Right. Um, yeah. But certainly when the test results come back, you know, if I'm a general pediatrician and I haven't heard this podcast and I hear that, you know, this infant in my practice is positive for PKU, then I call the geneticist. They say, start the special formula, stop the breastfeeding. And it, that interruption, some moms never will recover from that. Exactly. And
0: that's what they say to try to avoid, but the early diagnosis. And just start to sneak in the start to add in the formula, but keep them breastfeeding so that you don't interrupt breastfeeding. And then they also um, measured like what percent of hospital, what percent of countries, are more likely to admit the child to the hospital upon diagnosis. And they broke it up mm. into regions, and they found that ninety percent of Eastern European Eastern European countries will admit. The infants, ninety percent of the Eastern European, I should say, centers metabolic centers in Eastern Europe will admit as soon as they're diagnosed. Um, however, in Northern Europe, only twenty one percent of those metabolic centers will admit upon diagnosis. So there's a real wow. So it it kind of depends on how much outpatient support they have, so it varies quite a bit in terms of whether they get admitted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Any Anything,
1: any other words of wisdom about PKU? As a PKU? Uh, the only other thing that I would add in is that, um, you know, PKU is a heterogeneous disease. So some people have zero enzymes and others have, you know, they've gotten one allele that um, doesn't work from even though it's a a recessive condition, sometimes there's some amount of enzyme activity. Mm -hmm. And so there's like a type one, type two. And so I think that, you know, when I first learned about the contraindications to breastfeeding, this was one that I was taught. And later on, I had my general pediatrics clinic in a space that was also used by genetics. And I learned at that time that, um, you know, some people do have some enzyme activity. And so they would be able to tolerate um, probably a higher level of breastfeeding than other Mm -hmm. patients. And that's why that testing early and then following their levels is so important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And phenylalanine, I mean, uh, breast milk has lower phenylalanine levels, I think, than regular standard formula is my understanding. So that, um, so that you have to interrupt the, um, if breastfeeding, the amount of breast milk is, needs to be interrupted less than the amount of standard formula needs to be interrupted. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm told that fennel-alanine-free formula does not taste very good. So that's another whole My issue. impression is that no formula tastes very good. but Yeah, I don't know. I never have had it. Had it so I don't know. But you know, of course, infants have a very different taste buds than we do. So
1: they're not no it's them. true and it's funny to me sometimes how you know like people will be warming up formula in the in the hospital for brand new newborns and i'm like they really don't care
0: no they don't care they're just hungry they just want to survive mm-hmm. yeah so the last article that i have today is one on colostrum and giardia infection and i thought this was like so fascinating that i need to share it even though um the general outcome of the study is not as impressive as the actual, like, um, journey of getting to the to the results. So, anyway, the article is entitled "Colostrum and Giardia Infection: Human Colostrum Action Against Giardia lambia Infection Influenced by Hormones and Advanced Maternal Age." So it was a so, but they essentially they were trying to understand: is there a difference in the colostrum in, in older women versus young mothers? in terms of how their colostrum can fight Giardia. And so this was research that was done in- Baffled by how they got to this
1: hypothesis. I know, I know, that's
0: so I was specific. I know, I was wondering about that. This is published in the Journal of Parasit. it's called Parasitology Research in 2018. And it was um, a study that was done in Brazil. And so the article starts by saying that Jardia is a huge issue for public health in non-First World countries. And there are about 200 million cases each year of Jardia, mostly in children. And I would say that um, uh, we still we have Jardia here too. I mean, I see Jardia when people go camping, when they have dogs and they live in the country and the dogs are running in and out of the creek that's in the backyard, they bring in Jardia. So we do see Jardia mm-hmm. periodically um, in this country as well so but not really among babies so breastfeeding um, reduces the rate of giardia because colostrum and mature milk both contain immune components that are anti-parasitic and particularly macrophages Um, but there are some other bioactive factors that play a role in making those macrophages more effective so for those of you who um May not know much about macrophages, those are a type of white cell that I always like to think about as Pac-Man type white cells. They like, if you think of a (laughs) Pac-Man, they like to just chomp and chew, and they're very aggressive in terms of like destroying by consuming, I guess, is what that would mean. So um, interestingly, cortisol and melatonin that's in breast milk and high levels in colostrum play a really important role in modulating the activity of the macrophages. So um, the reason why – I guess the reason why these researchers did this study is because older mothers who are – and they describe older as being like, I think, over 35 maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, over 35. Um, they have changes in their blood hormone levels, and the question is whether those hormone levels are different in their colostrum and if, though, and if the difference in those hormones in the colostrum have a different effect on the protection from giardia. So uh, what they did is they – they evaluated the colostrum of older mothers um, by measuring the cortisol and the melatonin and the function of the macrophages in the colostrum. So they had two different groups. They had mothers that were 18 to 35 and then another group over 35. And all the mothers gave 8 ml of colostrum to the researchers within 48 to 72 hours after birth. So they measured the melatonin levels and cortisol levels in the colostrum and then they washed all of the cells that were in the colostrum, and they pulled out the white cells, which had the macrophages, and then um, they, bathed, they bathed them in the melatonin and the cortisol because the cortisol and melatonin were supposed to, like, you know, drive their, their phagocytic activity, their ability to fight Giardia. And so they took Giardia parasites, and then they, you know, they um, put the, phag- the phagocytes, the, the white cells, the macrophages, in with the Jardia and watched to see how well the phagocytes worked. And so they found that the older women had much higher amounts of cortisol and melatonin in their colostrum than the younger mothers. But the younger mothers had stronger macrophages. Um, so they found that if you, they, before bathing the macrophages with hormone, the younger mother's macrophages had a higher rate of Jardy elimination um, than the older mothers. But then when they bathed them together, they did find The mothers um, did their hormone levels made, basically made up for the weaker phagocytes on their own. So perhaps having those higher levels in the colostrum helped to boost their more weakened cells as compared to younger mothers. So I thought that was interesting because, you know, I see. Of course, we all know um, that people, as they get older, they're not as their their ability to fight off infection is not as strong, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, we don't even give the live um, nasal flu vaccine to people over 50 because they are not because they're at risk for actually getting flu from it, <laughs> um, not being able to use it as well um, to fight off flu and um, and we know that people, as they get older, they just don't fight off, I mean, they don't fight off infection very well as, at all, um, which is why we say that, you know, to an extreme, pneumonia is the old man's friend, you know, that's a natural way to die is by infection. So it's interesting that even over the age of 35, we're seeing a difference in the phagocytes in colostrum um, compared to women who are younger.
1: Find the study to be depressing.
0: I know. Well, and interestingly, I mean, if you think about, you know, our bodies in terms of, like, 100,000 years ago or whatever, um, women, you know, people didn't live past 25 or 35, right? I mean, they were, they were dead by then. And so so uh, maybe, maybe our – You're not helping maybe, my depression. Yeah, maybe, our, maybe our breast milk um, – and our colostrum is kind of a look back in time as to, you know, really uh, the evolution of our, you know, our bodies. And this is really what the milk looked like back then. I don't
1: know. So I don't know. I mean, I, we do love to geek out about all the stuff that's in breast milk and colostrum. And so yes. it's cool to hear that, you know, they're studying how these different hormones affect the cells in there and, and what they're doing.
0: And I think that's what it, that's really what interested interesting. yeah that's, that was what was most interesting to me is that we have all these substances in breast milk, and it was just really cool to actually see the fact that some researchers have figured out that the melatonin and cortisol played a role in macrophage activity, and that you can do this experiment where you pull the components apart and then put them back together in a lab and see that the macrophages are stronger with the hormones there so I thought. It's just a beautiful system that, you know, we're just learning about. And, and then that's why, you know, that's why formula is never going to be the same, right? Because formula is not going to add these – is not going to have the bioactive factors because these are living, living substances um, that are not inorganic. Mm-hmm. And you can't get that kind of system um, in something that's pre-made like that unless you use genetic engineering like the way that we make insulin – um, you know that 's mm-hmm, um, made that's from from a cell cellular population, so well, thank you for broadening my uh, knowledge on yeah. that topic that was yeah. fun <laughs> right yeah, so otherwise um, that 's it for today, and uh, we 'll have some great topics next time and um, if anyone 's interested in learning uh, or keeping keeping abreast of the most recent topics that are coming out in um, breastfeeding medicine, particularly policy statements or articles that are um, influential in changing our practice or our thinking, check out the clinical question of the week at themookmob.org. And um, then we will perhaps have an update on putting together breastfeeding medicine practices in the near future with you, Karen. Yay! Yeah. So I'm learning a lot yeah all right talk to you later all right bye bye regarding this podcast please contact us through our website at lacted.org we have other educational projects including the clinical question of the week our little green book of breastfeeding management for physicians and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.